Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're done with your Oreo. <laughs> yeah, I'm done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, Do you really know what happened? The brother did. The brother, that's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you want to talk about death? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm The podcast. The podcast. Start, start the podcast. Are we even on beat? Were we even <laughs> together? No, I don't think so. <laughs> we'll listen to it later and find out. <sighs> What's up, y'all? Hey. How's it going? Hey. Hey. <laughs> I can't believe we do this. <laughs> Every week. I think, it, I think it's cool. This is our, what is it, 72 now? Yeah, 72nd. Wow, we're week. really going. We're and committing to we're this. we're actually doing it if you're like before an, Wednesday. If you're, like, if you're like a fan, then you're like in the know, you know? Right. If you know, you know. If you know, you know. What's up, y'all? Oh, um, welcome to Mystery, Mystery Murdery, Murdery Thingy. thingy. <laughs> My name's Mario. My name's Chloe. Uh, we're gonna be talking about some mysteries and murderies. And yeah, we're just here to chill and talk Let about us entertain some you. Some things that are interesting to us. It's true, and also mysterious things that we find. Things that we find that sometimes are important and sometimes are not, <laughs> and sometimes are super mysterious and sometimes are less mysterious. But it's all. Within the yeah. realm of there's a question there. There's something right. at its core. There's a, there's a question. We'll, right. we'll, and we may never know the answer. But also, uh, we designed it in such a way that we could kind of talk about anything. Yes. You know, <laughs> like, it could be about anything, you know. And yeah, if, if you're listening for the first time, like, go back and look through all the topics we've covered. Because I think we we, like, very intentionally try to, like, Keep it diverse, right? Diverse types of mysteries, yeah. diverse places. If it's a, a crime, you know, different types of victims. Yeah, I just feel like that's like something we. I, I feel like we've done a pretty good job of that, right? Over the seventy-two episodes, right? Yeah, we're not strictly like true crime, I suppose. Right, and we're not a like um, one of those like murder comedy podcasts. Like yeah. last podcast on the left. Like, I don't know what we are. We don't have a genre. No, I don't think we're, I just think we're like very conversational and want to talk about like 
something that interests us. And I think other people are like into that too. There are so, yeah, some of them. We we've gotten like a few emails. We've gotten some shouts out on social media. You know, I, yeah. We're doing our thing, and now that I have, in fact, graduated <laughs> with Woo! a bachelor yeah. of fine arts good job thank you very much in i have acting. a lot more going for me exactly besides 37 grand in debt i checked the other day <laughs> a very expensive piece of paper you bought oh wowie <laughs> i spent way more than that um on my degree so doing better than me i guess i don't know <laughs> it's we're all drowning in debt we're all drowning you know in debt, hey we? i mean i am 22 like <laughs> good for you i'm a mere child <laughs> <laughs> in the grand scheme of things in the grand scheme of things i'm still a kid true all right we're moving on okay we're so doing it who's gonna you're doing it you're doing it here <laughs> um who's gonna go first <laughs> that's for i want to go first oh okay. peter pan not peter griffin i was <laughs> Two totally different mindsets we've got going here. Great minds think very differently. So, let's talk. I'm so fucking excited, dude. (laughs) You have no idea. (laughs) Let's talk about Michael DeGuzman and the Brie X scandal. Okay. Now, I got this idea from Reddit. Now, As you get so many good ideas. I usually get my, just note that I usually get my ideas from Reddit and not my research from Reddit, just simply because Reddit should be taken with a grain of salt in general. Exactly. It's like Wikipedia. It's a good starting off point. It's right. a good place to find right. other sources. And we hype up Wikipedia a lot, but like a lot of Wikipedia is me going to the bottom and like looking at what they got, where their resources are from. And, like, because sometimes I read something and I'm like, did that happen? And then I go see where they got it from. And sometimes, and this is going to, I think, I was thinking more about what the one I'm doing for this week. So yeah. Sorry to jump ahead a little bit. But sometimes Wikipedia is biased because mm. the person who wrote it is biased. And it mm. sometimes tells you that, like, this section is probably biased. So, like, you take that into account, right? Like, oh, this is about a government figure, <laughs> and it was probably written by that government. So when and they say PR these things, figures yeah, exactly. Like so that. when they, it's like talking about them in this way, like, okay, I know where this is coming from, right? But it, in general, Wikipedia is. I mean, again, I've said this before. One of the wonders of the internet. Like, it's it's one of the greatest things man has it's ever like created. It's like what man. Uh, it's like essentially. Women, it's like essentially what. The internet was for like information, right? It's yes, it's 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 the idea like of the free. internet that people had free. before the internet was invented. Yeah, it's yeah. like all knowledge should be free, uh, free in the sense of free of cost, but also free in the sense available to everybody. Right? We were young, but we could have been right. <laughs> I love that line. Uh, anyway. Anyway. We got off topic. We're, we're, we're <laughs> immediately okay. okay. So now that we've like done some like rambling. Um, in the beginning, we are going to continue to not do that. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> All right. Because I'm very, I am very excited about this. Um, I've got a story of, of, of gold, not of gold, also of gold standard, but literally about gold. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, okay. Of lies, deceit, and a suicide, question mark? 
mystery? Get it? <laughs> Question mark? Okay. Wait, is this a mystery podcast? I'm going to start with my sources because I have a lot of them. Um, and I'm kind of bummed that I found, like, the best long form and the best sourced article towards the end of my research. Ah, oh, I was Me so too. mad. I found, a, I found like, one of those where it says it's going to take, like, 45 minutes. Right. But I, also, I could kind of tell it had a lot of the same info I already had. But, but it was really interesting. Mine had a lot of extra details mm. and a lot of upfront interviews. And that was from the Calgary Herald. And it was an article by Ted Rhodes. Um. I used that. I used uh, the Wikipedia Brie X page. And I found this weird site called wikibooks.org, which was basically a Wikipedia page. Hmm. It had, like, so I sources and everything. It was very interesting. Um, they're, they're, like, Michael DeGuzman and Brie X Scandal page. And then a, a really – and I got a, um, a couple of, of Washington – or no, I got one Washington Post article from the time. I got a couple of sources from the time, from 1997. And that one was one of them by Howard Schneider, um, an Atlas Obscura article by Eric Grundhauser, the Canadian Encyclopedia article by Steve Mike, and um, Fortune Magazine article also from 97 um, by Richard Behar. <clears throat> so – Let's talk about the mining company itself, Brie X. So it was founded in 1989 by Canadian businessman um, David Walsh. So they've got this company, right? They're not doing that well. Um, and like in the 80s, uh, there was a lot. There was kind of a stock market crash um, and gold was not doing that well anyway. So Walsh took the advice from... Two geologists, one being a man named John Felderhoff um, and the other being a man named Michael DeGuzman. So they got together and he was like, look, you should buy this property. So there's a property in the middle of a a jungle near the Busang River in Kalimantan, Indonesia. John Felderhoff uh, was credited with finding the largest gold mine in Papua New Guinea. And Michael DeGuzman um, had been, like, exploring Southeast Asia for gold. And they were the ones that were looking into this island. Um, so Felderho- Felderhoff was named general manager of Briex's Indonesian exploration and brought in Michael DeGuzman. And they're, they're friends. Uh, and he's a Filipino geologist as well. So, long story short, this Indonesian expedition proved a huge success quote-unquote success, and they struck gold, despite the fact that numerous other mining companies have labeled the land as practically worthless, right? But Busang had been sporadically explored in the 1980s, and then in 1989, an Australian company called Montague even gave up on the property, and they walked away. But Briax steps in, and then the and the first two expeditions actually were failures, but by 1995, they hit it big. And then by 1997, they claimed to have up to 71 million ounces of gold found, which is almost four times the size. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the world's biggest known deposits, right? Just just right there. And as they... um kept digging. So the first time they struggled was in 1995. 
And the first time there was an estimated 30 million ounces. But then each time they surveyed the land, like every year, the estimate kept going up and up and they just kept kind of kept finding more. And Felderhoff estimated um, that there may up to may be up to 200 million ounces of gold over there, which is more than the California gold rush. So all these estimates were based on, note that all of these estimates were based on the core samples that were provided by Michael DeGuzman. Mm. So investors get word of this and they all flock to Briax. So the stock was, so before um, they struck gold, it was originally listed on the Alberta Stock Exchange. Um, But then it moved to the Toronto Stock Exchange, and then it moved to the NASDAQ in 1996. So even J.P. Morgan signed on, and they, like, made public statements and stuff endorsing BREEX. So the stock price of BREEX started at, like, 30 cents, right? And it rose to 280 Canadian dollars per share by 1997. About 200 American dollars? About, uh... $330 Three hundred thirty dollars in twenty nineteen American oh, okay. dollars. Okay. Okay. I think it's about two hundred Canadian dollars, a little so, over two hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so at its peak, it had a market capitalization equal to four point four billion U.S. dollars, which is about seven billion dollars now. Ching. right? Like, so obviously, David Walsh, John Felderhoff, and uh, Michael DeGuzman became multimillionaires. So according to the Washington Post, quote, between April and September 1996, Felderhoff sold $26.5 million in Briex stock. Walsh, Walsh sold $5.5 million and his wife Jeanette sold $20.6 million, according to insider trading records. So Briex had act- had also turned um, the Busang River uh jungle area into like this mining village Mm -hmm. they built a new church they opened up a kindergarten they even had like sewing classes there for the local women they opened up like part of it to be cleared for an airport they planned to open um, a fishery and a poultry farming venture because they wanted the tribe there to be able to like sell products to the mine and stuff like that so they were thinking big, right? So eventually, the Indian, the Indonesian government was like, not cool. They got involved. <laughs> yeah. They're like, okay. So, so the president, uh, President Suharto, saw how the gold estimates, you know, straight up. And he stated that Briex was too small of a company to mine the entire area by themselves. So he kind of forced them into a partnership. Here, let me help you. Exactly. So you can't refuse. (laughs) Yeah. He like blocked off them getting like official jurisdiction or or something, something. He, there was like, he put in some red tape. Of course. course. Um, so in February of 1997, they made a deal. Brie X would enter a partnership and share the site with, um, this large Canadian mining firm called Barrick Gold in association, in association with President Suharto's daughter, Siti uh, Hardiante Rukmana. So Freeport, McMorin, Copper and Gold, another successful mining company established in Phoenix, Arizona, would run the mine. And Briax would have the land rights for 30 years. So their partnership was with Barrick Gold, Indonesia, and Freeport, McMorin. 
Moran Copper and Gold, which I'll just call Freeport. So now that Bree X has this part partnership with Freeport, they Freeport has to run their own tests. And now it's time for them to independently verify that the Busang River site does in fact have gold. I'm 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 feeling something. Feeling I'm, something? I'm, I'm, I'm a little skeptical. It, Things it, uh, start to go to shit, obviously. Uh, okay, here it goes. Okay. But let's talk quick about Michael DeGuzman. So Michael DeGuzman, as stated before, he was a veteran Filipino geologist who grew up in the city of Manila, the capital of the Philippines. So when he was young, he actually wanted to be like a basketball player, but he ended up, uh, he was like jumped by a group of thugs or something and they shattered his knee. And so he ended up with a limp for the rest of his life. Tragic, but don't feel too bad for this guy. All right. Just fair warning. (laughs) Uh, The Brie X gold find was like, I guess it was like the best thing to happen to him in his otherwise pretty unsuccessful career as a geologist. And he like traveled all over Southeast Asia looking for gold, but he never found anything. So, you know, like he with his job, he travels and stuff, but he has a wife and six kids in the Philippines. Um, But he was kind of a womanizer. He 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 got around, you know, he got around a lot. Mm-hmm. He actually had three other wives oh all God. over Asia and what? he managed to keep them a secret from one another until wow. his death. That's that's pretty crazy. He had a total of like 9 kids or something. It was Jesus. it's wild. Um March 19th, 1997, Michael DeGuzman reportedly committed suicide. So, two sets of handwritten suicide notes were found. DeGuzman indicated that he killed himself to escape the suffering of hepatitis B, even though he had just, like, recently contracted the virus and medical records were, like, like, it was, it it could have been handled, like, it wasn't, um, it wasn't serious. Mm. Um, one of the notes said, quote, God bless you all, no more stomach pains, no more back pains, end quote. So, overall, DeGuzman didn't seem suicidal at all. Earlier in the month... Um, March 1997, he made a presentation to analysts and industry execs at uh, the annual Prospectors and Developers Association convention at this super fancy uh, hotel in Toronto called Royal York Hotel. So, you know, he's living it up, taking advantage of his new fame. He's cheerful. He's happy. He spent his free time at the strip club. Um, But you know, meanwhile, we have Freeport over here doing their own investigation on his gold um, that he supposedly has. Um, so they actually call him. Freeport's like, we need you to get back to Indonesia right now. Um, so while this was happening, de Guzman, uh yeah, so he gets a call telling them, telling him that he needs to get back to Indonesia ASAP. So on the flight back, he makes a stop in Singapore for a medical check, medical checkup to monitor his ongoing struggle with malaria and hepatitis. Um, and then on March 18th, he checked into a hotel um, with Brie X. I don't know how to say this metallurgist, mm-hmm. metallurgist Rudy Vega. Uh, he writes a memo to John Felderhoff saying, you know, I have this upcoming meeting with, uh, the Indonesia's Ministry of Mines, and he's like, okay, I'll be back in Jakarta at the end of the month. I'll update you later. Writes this memo. He faxed the memo. 
Um, then him and Vega go out drinking at a karaoke bar, and then they get super drunk, and they head back to the hotel. The next day, the two get on the helicopter. Vega gets off in Samarinda, which is a little bit before um, Busang. De Guzman continues on, but he never arrived. Uh, reportedly, Michael de Guzman had jumped out of the helicopter while it was cruising about 800 feet over the jungles of Indonesia, Indonesia in an apparent suicide. What? So his body wasn't co- un- his body wasn't recovered until four four days later. The hands and the feet were missing, and the body was severely decomposed. It had been ravaged by wild animals as well because he was in the middle of the freaking jungle. Right. Um, and he was. It was allegedly identified through molars and thumbprints. Meanwhile, so the news comes out about De Guzman committing suicide. Um, just days later, the results of Freeport's findings go public. And surprise, surprise, there's no gold at all. So another company, um, Strathcona Mineral Services Limited, based in Toronto, also investigated. They went even further and they declared that Briax, this was a huge scam. This is all a product of tampering. So apparently what, here's what happened. So Freeport contacted, they call him and they're like, hey, we need you to come back to Indonesia. Um, and de Guzman jumped out of the helicopter on the way to that meeting. Uh, so as it would turn out, de Guzman had been quote, salting his core samples with gold dust. First, with shavings from his own wedding ring, and later, with 61... Clearly this guy did not value the institution of marriage. Absolutely not at all with his four wives. <laughs> right. Um, and later, with $61,000 worth of locally panned gold that he took from, like, that he, like, bought from the natives. Wow. So of course, so they have. So here he is. He's like, "Yo, what's up, everybody? I struck, I struck gold." So of course, other geologists, you know, hired by some of the investors. Once the investors find this out, you know, they hire their own people. They took a look at this and they were like, kind of suspicious. So the standard would normally testing would normally going in and like testing these type of things to make sure that there's actually gold is to split a sample in half and then leave the other half for like others to test or future partners to test. But in this case, the entire cores had been totally crushed up and the gold flakes that were extracted, like they like fell away too easily and like they were a weird shape. <laughs> it looked oh like it looked like um, it was panned from a river <laughs> rather than volcanic gold that would you yet you'd get from like bedrock. Um, it was just off. Wow. So there was suspicion, and there was suspicious in the be- suspicions in the beginning. Um, but De Guzman and, and Maybe his whole team also. We don't know. In the end, like, we don't know who knew and who mm. didn't. Okay. Um, but dude was good. He was great at manipulating people. And I'll talk about this a little bit later, too, how, like, this all could have happened. Um, there was also a suspicious fire that took place in January that destroyed a building housing all of, conveniently, all of DeGuzman's papers and his, like, visible samples and shit like that. So... One of the main things of why this, how all this could have happened, I think, is that no one really thought that someone would be crazy enough to, like, lie about something like this on such a massive scale. Because it's, like, a 
It's pretty brazen. It's mm-hmm. a big lie. And so you would assume that people wouldn't – no one would be that stupid and to do it on such a massive scale so people kind of like, oh, of, co- of course it's real. Like, you know, um, even like before Freeport did their testing, Brex was building credibility um, They because of, they, of their listings on the stock market. But they still have like pretty crappy credentials. Like their public statements and official filings like noted that – their estimates had been prepared by a respected engineering firm called CNC Lavalin, which is based in Montreal. However, um, no, SNC, 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 SNC Lavalin. However, SNC Lavalin had been hired only to make its calculations based on samples that were already extracted and processed by Briac. So, like, they weren't, they were already, like, it was meaningless. Down, it was meaningless. There were two down, uh, downstream of like the, the process. Yeah. So they they were getting these samples that were already doctored. Mm-hmm. So by the time the engineers were like looking at them, they're like, "Oh, this is legit." It, w- it weirdly reminds me of. Um, I know this is going to sound weird. The Olympic Russian doping scandal. Remember we, we watched yeah. the, the because the, because the, it, that went so deep but, but because they they would uh, doctor the sample when it was on its way to be tested right because they were in the testing lab and they had a secret like little door between two rooms where they would literally okay you you did your sample okay it's on its way to go be tested physically we're taking it during that process putting our hand through a wall into another room, someone's doctoring it, handing it back to us, and then we're taking it on its way. So it it seems fairly akin to that, where it's, you know, it seems legitimate because, oh, it went through a testing process, but the process itself was messed with. Yeah, it's it's wild. That was, everybody watched what's called Icarus? Icarus, that, I was trying to think of it. On Netflix? It's so good. It's such a good documentary, but that... That was like doctors getting in trouble and shit like that. Did it, it did it end up winning the Oscar, or it just got nominated? I can't. I can't I'm it was not the person nominated. to ask uh, for that. <laughs> so, De Guzman's own tactic tactics also went unchecked because he surrounded himself with these like young student geologists, geologists and visitor and villagers on the site. So. Here's a quote from a Richard Bahar's article in Fortune magazine. Quote, at the exploration camp, I drank Bintang, a local beer, deep into the night with with 10 of these workers, many of whom were fresh out of geology school in Canada, Indonesia, or the Philippines. As we listened to wild monkeys screech like sirens of the darkness, the young men talked about the rigors of life in the bush. They complained about the grueling work schedule, eight weeks on, two weeks off, and the lack of sex, but they believed they were making history. They were the geological equivalent, equivalent of bat boys for the world champion Yankees. They didn't know they were pawns in a crooked game that was fixed from the get-go. Wow. Quote. Yeah. It's kind of sad, actually. It is sad. So, the aftermath, right? Briex screwed over villagers and the native people that were there. Similar to the gold rush, lots of people in the area, like, left everything behind and moved to Busang in hopes of finding gold. And some of them are still there. Some of them really do believe that there's gold. Wow. I mean, I don't know. Uh, Stocks tanked 
after this. Um, investors lost billions of dollars. Among the major losers were three Canadian public sector organizations. The Ontario Municipal Employees Retirement Board, they lost $45 million. The, I can't do French, I don't know what that I'm says. Caisse, Caisse de Depot et Place yeah, Placement du Quebec. <laughs> Terrible. Quebec. Quebec. Um, a depot in Quebec. Uh, oh, oh. The Quebec Public Sector Pension Fund. I should have just said that. Um, they lost $70 million, and the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan lost $100 million. Uh, yeah. So there was an investigation, but in 1999, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police ended their investiga- investigation without laying criminal criminal charges against anybody. So, but I mean, there were still civil class action lawsuits mm-hmm. against Briax. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Walsh and John Felderhoff were accused of colluding with DeGuzman, especially since they each sold $25 million in Briax stock right before his suicide. But I mean... They never really got charged for anything. I mean, Walsh moved to the Bahamas in 1998, and he always said he was innocent. Um, fun fact. Not fun fact, actually. It's terrible. I don't know why I said fun fact. Two masked gunmen break into his home in Nassau. They tie him up, and they threaten to shoot him unless he turned over all of his money. Uh, I guess it ended. I mean, I, I don't really know what happened for sure, but the incident ended peacefully. And three weeks later, June 4th, 98, he died of a brain aneurysm. Wild. That's weird. Yeah. Uh, John Felderhoff was charged with insider trading in May of 1999 by the Ontario Securities Commission. Um, so the trial started in 2001 and there were some appeals and it didn't it didn't really end until July 31st of 2007. And Felderhoff was declared not guilty. Mm. Uh, the OSC admitted that there really wasn't evidence that he was involved in it or that he was even aware that it was happening. It's a really tricky situation. So the fraud convinced Canadians to add new regulations when it comes to professional geology and mining and stuff like that. National Instrument 43-101 protects investors from unsubstantiated mineral uh, project disclosures and it requires involvement, quote, involvement of a qualified person, end quote. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, Not someone who's making shit up. Wild. So to this day, people believe that Michael DeGuzman's still alive. Uh, they're like, maybe he faked his death. Did he fake his death when it became clear that his scheme was totally about to be uncovered? Or was he a scapegoat? And was he poss- was it was it murder? Maybe he was pushed from the helicopter. That's what I was thinking. Really? Was like, jumped from the hel- what do you what do you mean jumped from the helicopter? As like suicide. Like, clearly he was pushed from the helicopter. I mean maybe. Like, I don't know. It just seems so implausible. I so, mean, why wouldn't he have just bought a gun and shot himself before he even got on the helicopter? That's a good question. The autopsy was quick and his body was hastily cremated before any real DNA tests were taken. Suspicious. The fingerprint evidence was inconclusive. Some say he was carrying a bag with three hundred thousand dollars U.S. dollars cash on the day he disappeared, but the money was never found. (laughs) In one penny coins. In in a big, heavy black briefcase (laughs) with a money sign on it. Oh yeah. 
his brother, Jojo de Guzman, and some of his four wives, some of them, some of them believe he's dead. Some of them, some of them believe that he died, he, uh, or that he's still alive. Um, but they all agree that something wacky is going on. Even, uh, Dr. Daniel Umar, the doctor who did the autopsy, can't say for certain that the remains belong to Michael de Guzman. Mm. Also, when, uh, this, they contacted him, like, early in his career, and he hadn't done that many autopsies. And so, like, when they interviewed him for the Calgary Herald, he was like, like, if I did that today, I would, like, take DNA samples and, like, do so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2005, uh, in an interview with journalist John Macbeth, DeGuzman's second wife, Jeannie DeGuzman, said six weeks after her husband reportedly jumped to his death, he called her home and spoke to a maid. A message was relayed that Jeannie should check her bank account. And when she did, she found $200,000 in there. Uh, She also claimed that in 2005, she received a fax notice from Brazil of an additional deposit of 25 grand. However, she couldn't produce the deposit slips proving her claim. So, uh, I don't know. The journalist believed her. So, I mean, that's that's a big question mark right there. Mm. Um. Although there are people out there who believe that Michael DeGuzman's alive, some people really believe that he's dead. Um, anthropologist Jerome Balin, known as the Sherlock Holmes of the Philippines, led a team of three investigators who uh, they looked into the case for the DeGuzman family. So their theory is that he was forced to give confidential information about Busang and, uh, com- and he was like, forced to write his final will in this and and the suicide notes before being like killed uh his body was like then he he was like killed someplace else then he was like tossed off the helicopter to make it look like a suicide or something Mm -hmm. and i guess his death was supposed to silence anyone else who had knowledge of the scam um the report is 23 pages long and it also suggests um that the evidence shows that de guzman was strangled garrot style and restrained in a chair but that I mean, the Calgary Herald is the only place I heard I heard that, and they got the I guess they got their hands on this report, um, this private report. Uh, the report also questions whether his internal organs were eaten by animals, but instead suggests that they were removed along with the genitals in order to desecrate the body. So, the suicide notes also misspelled um, one of his wife's nicknames. And there was a ton of grammatical errors, even though he was fluent in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, obviously there's there's a lot of mystery here. Okay, there were some compl- there were some conflicting reports as I like found through my research. Like the Calgary Herald said that it was a misconception that DeGuzman was cremated, and that one of his other siblings like saw the dead body and recognized him by the hands and his feet. Even though other sources said that the hands and the feet were cut off, so. There's some weird reporting there. Mm. Um, Busang having gold is a mystery in and of itself. Lots of people believe, like the locals really believe that there still could be gold there. But, you know, we don't know. Mm. And, of course, um, Michael de Guzman. Is he alive? Is he dead? Who knows? Maybe he and Elvis and D.B. Cooper are all hanging out. And Tupac. And, and Tupac, of course. In yeah. Cuba. Tupac is the ridiculous one, though. Because, I mean... He, we saw his body, right? Yeah, people want him to be alive. Yeah, it's it's more a hope thing. Um, same for Elvis, I guess. But 
D.B. Cooper and Michael DeGuzman are hanging out for sure. This is wild. Yeah, that was crazy. But I can see what you were telling me before that you kept like finding more layers and more layers yeah, to the mystery. Yeah, I did. It feels that way. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Cool. Uh, so let me go ahead and do yes. mine. Okay. So uh, mine is um, okay. So I'm <laughs> to, okay. So okay. So in the extreme northwest of China. Okay. Let's reorient ourselves. Okay. We're going to be spending a lot of time in Central Asia uh, during during mine today. Uh, there's a province called Xinjiang. And this is this is what my story is going to be about to, uh, this week. So it's the largest province in China. Uh, technically, it's a semi-autonomous region. It's home to millions and millions of people. But you know, like with a lot of things, most people have never heard of it, right? Especially here in America, where people are ignorant. Um, but I mean... it's <laughs> but it's it's actually a very um, strategically globally important place at this at this time. Um, and there's also a big mystery about what exactly is the Chinese government is doing in Xinjiang right now. Oh, that's crazy. Um, so we're going to start out with, with some, some kind of context. Um, I'm just, oh, oh my God. Um, so uh, going to talk a little bit about what, where, you know, what Xinjiang is like, what, what kind of the basis of all of this is. So it's an importantly strategic, uh, important strategic region, um, because the, the communist party, right. The leaders in Beijing, Xi Jinping, the president for life of China at this point, um, they see it in, in kind of two ways, both as a link as well as a buffer. So it's a link in the sense that as I was telling you earlier, it borders eight other countries um, and is both in modern times and historically an important trade route for China and like this link to the West. Um, and it's also a buffer because large parts of Xinjiang, especially the southern region known as Nanjiang, is a, a big desert, right? The Taklamakan Desert, uh, biggest desert in China, and it's largely uninhabitable. Um, and this represents, in the minds of right the the, the Chinese, um, a barrier uh, between the sort of restive Central Asian, you know, former Soviet republics, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, etc., et um, and the Middle East, uh, further you know to the south, and uh, sort of quote unquote core China, so to speak, you know the the East, uh, you know Beijing, you know. Um, what what we think of sort of when we think of the, of China, so um, Xinjiang is also strategically important because it has vast mineral, uh, oil, natural ga- gas wealth, um, the biggest reserves in ch- in China uh, of any uh, singular region. About a quarter of all of the, I think, oil that um, exists in China is is there in Xinjiang. Oh, wow. So um, this is especially in the Tarim Basin, but also in some of the other basins. And just for more of the kind of deeper history of this region, see our episode 24, um, where I, I talk a little bit more about this. Oh. Mum, uh, faces in the floor and mummies in the desert. Oh, oh. A remote okay. episode where you, you were up north and we did it over Skype. I it's like the that. only time we've ever done that. Anyway, so... Um, None of that really, though, is is why I'm talking about Xinjiang this week. 
our mystery centers around the people that live there. Um, and this is a, a group of people that we've talked about several times, uh, the Uyghurs, uh, the, the, the oh. Uyghur minority. Um, so uh, now a little context on who are the Uyghurs, because oh. we, we've mentioned them before, but I wanted to get into a little bit of a deeper dive of, of, of who, what, you know, what this people kind of consists of. Am I going to be bummed by the end of this mystery? <laughs> well, of course, this is, this is definitely not the most uplifting story in the world. Okay, I mean, I'm ready. You know. It's important. It's important. Ex- exactly. So um, just a little context on, on who are the Uyghurs. So they're a Turkic people um, who call Xinjiang East Turkestan. So they're, they're connected uh, culturally, excuse me, to Turkey, right? And And this sort of like wider set of people who... Um, sort of grew out, I suppose, of, you know, the, the Turkish Empire or Ottoman Empire, whatever. Um, and some Uyghurs claim heritage in this area, in Xinjiang, since about 1800 BCE. So long, long, long time ago. But this is pretty contentious. I, I kind of get into it in, in episode 24 a little bit more. So the, the Uyghur people descended mainly from uh, what was called the Uyghur Khaganate, um, an independent empire from 744 to 840 CE that at one time stretched all the way from the Caspian Sea, so near modern-day Turkey, all the way to Manchuria, the eastern edge, the, the eastern coast of the Asian continent. So a huge, huge empire um, at, at one time. In the north? Um, sort of spanning south to north. Okay. It's a huge, huge empire at that time, but it didn't last for too long, about 100 years. And um, they were originally of this um, faith called Manichaeism, um, which felt followed this uh, guy called Mani, and it, it's interesting. It used to be one of the biggest religions in the world, but it, it went away a long time ago, essentially. They ended up eventually converting to Buddhism and then Islam, um, ending in approximately the 17th century. And while they may have more cultural, religious, linguistic ties to, you know, Turkey, the Middle East, the West, they have also been intermittently in the sphere of influence of the East, of China, uh, for some time. And, and that's, that is pretty contested how really long that is or how that worked. There are historians, Uyghur historians and Western historians who disagree with the official historiography that's purported by the Chinese Communist Party, um, as you can imagine. Um, And in the modern era, essentially the last quarter of the 19th century, Beijing has has exerted more and more um, uh, sort of control over Xinjiang, which um, roughly translates to New Frontier. Um, I think it was like in the 1870s that that they called it that, started calling it that, and really considered this to be one, you know, region or province. And the domination from the the East, from Beijing, as many Uyghurs would see it, has involved, you know, a lot of mass migration of the majority ethnic Hans, um, especially since about the 1950s. But it's it it's not a it's not a monolithic situation, right? It's not the case that they're uh, wiping out all the Uyghurs, right? They're they're not just killing them on mass. It's not the case that no Uyghurs have any power within the system. It's not the case that they've completely gotten rid of their culture. 
but it's 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 sort of towards that, right? They they're they're sort of more or less gesturing towards that, and it changes over time. In the 1980s, there was a more reformist branch of the Communist Party that was in power, and people from minorities were actually recruited um, to to be part of the state, to be within the power structure in in their region. It was more truly a semi-autonomous region at that time. And there were some concessions made to, you know, traditional Uyghur identity, including allowing religious observance and teachings. They even had madrasas. There were a bunch of mosques that were built. Um, You know, it was kind of allowed to happen, even though, of course, the Communist Party is officially atheist. They, you know, denigrate all religions. They would rather no one be religious within their country, but they make some exceptions at certain times. Um, However, even in the midst of these, you know, in the 1980s, modest reforms, there were huge protests against the Chinese state in uh, the regional Xinjiang capital of Urumqi. In 1985, 1988, and 1989. And of course, if you know Chinese history, 1989, super important year. Um, there was a lot of unrest in neighboring in the neighboring uh, province of Tibet. And of course, there was the famous Tiananmen Square incident mm, with the, the famous right, photo of right, the student yeah. you know, standing in front of the, the yes, tank. Yes. Um, and of course, we're now at the 30-year anniversary of the Tiananmen Square. It's going to be in July, I believe. Uh, even though, of course, because... China is a very, very controlled state. A lot of people who live in China would not know what the hell you're talking about if you told them about oh, Tiananmen right. Square, That's especially weird. since a lot of people weren't even born at the time. That's so weird. It's pretty crazy. So in 1991, um, the Soviet Union, of course, broke up. Uh, some of those Central Asian, you know, Turkic speaking peoples that we mentioned earlier, you know, the Uzbeks, the Kazakhs, the Tajiks, right, um, got their own nations. And this gave hope to some Uyghurs and other minorities in that area and, uh, uh, of course, a concomitant dread to, you know, Chinese officials that Xinjiang would gain independence, that it would become East Turkestan or Uyghuristan or, you know, some, some version of this, right? The openings and the concessions, though, that I mentioned earlier were completely done by the early 90s. It did not last long. And a more hardline approach to these, you know, possible separatists, insurrectionists, right, as the state would see it, uh, it, it, there there were some more hardline approaches taken. And um, these, the Chinese, again, it's, it's a more... It's, it's not a one or the other situation. It's a little more nuanced. The, the, the fears that the Chinese leaders had were not entirely unfounded, right? Um, as there was were these sort of crackdowns, some Uyghurs and, and others um, did fight back, including with terrorist attacks. Um, so it's not as if none of that ever happened, right? Um, but it, it's, it's also been pretty far overblown by the Chinese government, as, mm-hmm. as I'll, I'll kind of get to um, towards the end. So these, co- It seems like a complicated situation. It's a complicated situation, for sure. And I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to, like, break it down um, in an understandable way. So these crackdowns continue and intensify through the mid-90s, late-90s, we're into the early 2000s. And there's um, what are called these uh, strike-hard campaigns, that were carried out by the by the Chinese government in, uh, um, you know, a, a sort of against the people in Xinjiang, if you if if you want to phrase it that way, and these were things like uh, holding patriotic ed- education classes. Hold on to that idea. 
religious and cultural identity was discouraged, subverted. Um, those sort of concessions to Islamic religious practices were, were no longer being given. So when did this happen? Um, now we're talking about through the 90s into the early 2000s. And sorry, wait, I'm confused. And they were doing do this mean? because they were afraid that they were going to become independent. Uh, that's part of it for okay. sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, but but it, I mean, it's very the the reasons why is sort of what I get to towards the end. And and as I'm sort of problematizing things here, I may as well mention that um, while this crackdowns, uh, these crackdowns rather, were going on against the Uyghurs and have obviously continued and intensified as time has gone on. Um, this is not true of all Muslims within China. Um, there uh, is a different ethnic minority called the Hui, um, who have been given much more license to practice their religious faith. So the the, the reasons why and, and, and these questions of, like, who's being cracked at, it, it gets fairly complicated. But, uh, but I'm sort of focusing on the Uyghurs uh, for the most part, because they are the uh, vast majority of the ethnic minorities in Xinjiang. Okay, so, um, again, as we're going into the early 2000s, we're getting more crackdowns, things are getting more intense. Um, these attempts, right, from the Chinese authorities' perspective to control arrestive and possibly violent population, um, as, we, as we were talking about, that's sort of the, the reason why, right? They see yeah, this as, yeah. as being um, uh, a, a, an area that needs to be more secure. That's insecure. Um, so this all this all sort of crystallizes into a sort of more formal policy after 9-11. Uh, the September 11th terrorist yes. attacks in, in, in New York City, of course, is what I'm referring to. So the, the policy was defined by the three, quote, the quote-unquote three evil forces what? of terrorism, ethnic separatism, and religious extremism. These are, of course, the Chinese government's words. Um, and this is how they defined the main security threat from Xinjiang, right? If they see this as a an insecure area, these are the particular ways in which they see that insecurity as manifesting, right? And again, that is uh, uh, terrorism, um, religious extremism, and ethnic separatism. So by combining these, quote, evil forces, right, Beijing could seek to eradicate religious identity, which, again, they're just sort of constitutionally against, and nationalistic feeling um, under the cover of fighting, quote, unquote, terrorists, right? So they say they're fighting the terrorists, and in fact, they may be fighting some terrorists, but they're also fighting other people who are not terrorists, whom they just want to oppress, essentially, because they want to have their own country or because they want to practice their own faith. Chinese government doesn't like when it, when people want to do those things, for the most part. So, you know, the crackdowns occur. So this sort of, um, if you want to call it a linguistic trick, right, of calling people terrorists, some of whom are and some of whom aren't terrorists, is by no means unique to China. Um, you see examples of this in Turkey, Syria, Russia other places um, throughout time. And it's basically used to justify a kind of dragnet, um, a, a widespread police response that catches some truly violent terrorists, but also nonviolent dissidents, you know, um, 
you know, just people who want, again, to have things the way they want it, uh, as opposed to the way the state wants it. And a wave of uh, violence um, in the late 2000s fomented a further set of crackdowns in Xinjiang. Um, And while the natural inclination of, you know, the vast majority of Uyghurs and, of course, other Muslims in Xinjiang and everywhere else in the world, it it does have to be uh, said, is, of course, nonviolent, non-extremist, collective punishment, essentially, it became the norm in Xinjiang. Um, the the sins of the very few were meted out to the vast majority, and and that's obviously it should go without saying not appropriate. Like um, how our, so? our government is doing those sorts of things right now. Yeah. It's not appropriate. Yeah, that, that's what I'm going to get into. So um, further control and, and especially surveillance was uh, consolidated and and greatly strengthened once the current president for life, of course, Xi Jinping came to power in 2012. Um, the number of cameras, the sophistication of the monitoring, the number of police and other you know security apparatus present to monitor the population all in- increased. And all of this also was um, uh, consolidated and strengthened in 2016 and, and afterwards when uh, Chen Guangguo became secretary of the local Communist Party in Xinjiang. He had previously held that same position in Tibet and essentially proved himself by, um, from the Beijing's perspective, um, you know, carrying out a very uh, effective campaign of oppression against, you know, people in Tibet. Okay, now go do your thing in Xinjiang is is sort of the Mm. idea here. So once Chen came in, the security budget for Xinjiang just exploded. Um, Tens of thousands of new police officers were hired, like 90,000 or something. Um, And there was also this thing, uh, which already existed but, but was strengthened, called the, quote, Unite as One Family Program, close quote, in which state officials literally live in your house with your family for up to several days to, quote, identify subversive behavior, encourage denunciations, and carry out patriotic education, close quote. That's some, like, dystopian, creepy... Yeah, if you ever hear somebody talk about modern China as George Orwell's 1984, pretty close. Like, it's not far. Um, that it it is truly a police state. Um, in Xinjiang. So we know that this happened. Yeah, that this part of it is not necessarily a mystery. That these that that that's a thing that they don't hesitate to admit that they've done. Uh, the Chinese government would not see that as something that they need to deny. But in addition <laughs> to this decidedly low tech form of surveillance, right, with the the person literally in your house, Chen also strengthened. Uh, greatly strengthened the technological surveillance apparatus in Xinjiang. Police at all of these, you know, many hundreds, thousands probably, of newly installed police stations, like in in, within these towns and cities, uh, regularly check smartphones. Video with facial uh, recognition was added or improved. Um, 
passports were taken en masse from basically all the weaker people that live in Xinjiang, uh, supposedly for, quote, safekeeping. What? And, the, and this gets to why some of this is a mystery, because, um, okay, it's what I like to call official mysteries, right? When essentially something is probably known or sort of an open secret, but it's officially a mystery because the government entity that would give you that information refuses to do so or is actively dis, you know uh, disinforming you so, so no when, 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 what... when when they say that it's you know for safekeeping clearly that's not true but it's also like well we don't really know what the reason is right I forgot. <laughs> okay. So all of this um, surveillance and tracking has allowed the Chinese government to create a massive database of essentially undesirable people. And those on the list are deemed security risks. Again, this is all getting down to security, essentially, right? Um, so you could be labeled a security risk if, for example, you've traveled to one of 26 flagged countries um, or because, you know you've contacted a member of the Uyghur diaspora, right? Uh, a, a Uyghur person in another country. Or simply by observing Islamic religious rules and traditions. You know, not drinking alcohol, not eating pork, uh, fasting during Ramadan. Doing those things could actually land you in trouble with the government, uh, which is pretty strange and, and disturbing, obviously. So in addition to tracking and rating these security risks, right, these people, uh, the Chinese government also appears to be um, interring an unknown number of people in essentially secret prisons. And what exactly is going on with these secret prisons and how many people exactly have been forcibly locked up in them is the central mystery here. So that this, I've finally gotten to, this is kind of the core mystery that I'm going to, that I'm kind of exploring. Um, but there's also this ancillary mystery of why, and, and I'm going to get into both of these. Oh, like so describe my face right now. I'm like disturbed. disturbed. Yes. Massively disturbed oh. as is appropriate. Um, so first <laughs> let's talk about these, you know, internment camps. Yeah. I mean, whatever you want to call them, right. Secret prisons, internment camps, um, the places where people are put. Um, what the Chinese government would like you to call them uh, is education and training centers or vocational schools. Um, I think more appropriately, uh, the the two, two of the Reuters authors, you know, uh, who wrote one of my sources, um, refer to them as, quote, no rights zones, close quote. And, and I think that's that's a really good description, actually. Um, and there could be, or even more than actually, a million people interred within these camps today, right now. Maybe more than that. Maybe significantly more than that. Yeah, without any real, you know, and, and again, this is why we don't know, right? No real accounting, no trial, no records, no nothing. Just, you're done. And you're there. So do people go, like, missing? I'll kind of get into that. Okay. So, um, again, this is a, an estimate, right, of the, of the actual number of people. This is one of the big mysteries about this. How many people are they interring? 
Um, because, of course, again, the Chinese government, not super willing to tell us, weirdly enough. Uh, not not super transparent when it comes to their secret prison population, as uh, you might imagine. Um, now, of course, they say these are students, right, trainees that are enrolled at these facilities who have chosen to go here um, to, to, to better their lives or correct the error of their ways. Of course, this is all bullshit, but um, this is what they say. This is the official line, uh, which, again, s- serves to create mystery in, in these situations, um, so what we do have to go on, though, are some official records, uh, not statements, but but actually the requisitions uh, or tenders, you might say, for money, construction materials, workers, police, etc., things that they need to run the security state in Xinjiang. So um, as a side note, these uh, requisitions, since all of this has kind of been more publicized have not been made public anymore. And some of the old ones have been deleted from the internet because they've realized, right, like, oh, yeah, when we order a bunch of barbed wire and cameras and hire police, maybe people will know that we're setting up a police state. Couldn't have figured that one out beforehand, I guess. Not totally sure. This is... It's crazy, I know. So what we also have are satellite photographs. Um, oh, and of course, this is kind of the, the the main sort of direct evidence. And these have been poured over by many, many people, but um, most notably by a German-based academic researcher named Adrian Sens. And I, I, I heard his name mentioned many times in many of my sources. He, he seems to be sort of a key uh, resource. For those trying to solve this this mystery, right, of, of what's going on in, in, in Xinjiang. So by analyzing local um, government documents and cross-referencing those with media reports, with satellite photography, uh, Sense and others have been able to establish that there has been a huge explosion of construction uh, in Xinjiang, especially between 2017 and 2018. And the requisitions establish that, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, despite, you know, what the Chinese government would say, that these are not the construction of schools or vocational training centers. Um, These are prisons, essentially. Um, There were requisitions for, quote, comprehensive security features, such as watchtowers, razor wire, surveillance systems, and guard rooms, uh, close quote. And uh, some of the ref- of the forms of the requisition forms refer to quote education centers or quote re-education centers or quote transformation through education school. The- these are all euphemisms, obviously. But they're still like like transformation or like re-education. School? What does right. that mean? Well, re- re- I feel like that's very. It's very cryptic. Or maybe we're just... Are mm-hmm. we just looking at it that way? No, no, no. It is cryptic. It's it's meant to be cryptic. But re- re-education is also a very loaded term that it, you can think of it essentially as uh, a form of, like, brainwashing through state propaganda, right? I'm not sure that they necessarily realized the implication of that word when they put it on the forum. I'm not sure. It's, it is very cryptic, actually. Um, so dozens, maybe more than a hundred or 
more of these facilities have been built or retrofitted into existing buildings throughout Xinjiang. But especially in the more rural areas, it, it, it seems, um, of southern Xinjiang, where um, the Uyghur minority is concentrated. They mostly live in the south. So not only... Um, or I should say, not all of those who are interred are Uyghurs, however. Um, among the, you know, hundreds of thousands, a million or more people that are being interred in the, you know, forcibly interred in these camps, um, there are members of various of the ethnic minorities. You know, there are Kazakhs, there are Uzbeks, um, you know, there probably are Huis and, and other peoples as well. Um, but the vast majority of those interred, just like the vast majority of people that live in Xinjiang are Uyghur and are Muslim, and some of these uh, facilities. You look at these uh, these um, they have such cool graphics nowadays. I mean, it's not cool. Obviously, it's terrible. It's tragic. It's awful. But the the ways in which it's represented are are, are very impactful because you can see you know when you look at some of these articles the sort of drop down right. So here's what it looked like in you know August 2015. Here's how it looks in August 2018. And it's a huge complex of buildings that popped up and super quick. And uh, what are these buildings for, right? This is, again, sort of the mystery. Um, It seems like they're for keeping people locked away. And um, there were also, you know, just a, a major expansion of existing facilities as well doubling, tripling the size of some of them, um, ostensibly meant to, you know, house people, support this unlawful incarceration uh, scheme that the Chinese government seems to be running. So still others of these facilities were, you know, they used to be schools, hospitals, other type of government uh, buildings, and they've been retrofitted to be prisons, essentially. These, of course, are harder to spot from satellite photography, but there are some very enterprising and brave uh, journalists, and and thank you so much to these people. It's it's wow. amazing that people do this. I mean, these are true heroes um, from BBC, Reuters, etc., 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 who have tracked to you know Kashgar, other cities in Xinjiang, Urumqi, um, to document the change in these buildings, and they've spotted and spoken with family members of people interred within these facilities that are waiting outside the buildings. Um, there was one uh, little anecdote that was pretty interesting where I think it was one of the Reuters journalists, um, you know, attempted to speak to, um, you know, a, like a mother and, and son, I think, that were standing outside. And uh, there were guards right there. And uh, the one guard was like, hey, you know, you can't talk to them. And the other guard was like, it's okay. Like, they, they can talk to them a little bit. Again, it's it's nuanced. Not everyone in all these situations feels the same way. Not all of the people who are carrying out the scheme feel the same way, I'm sure. I'm sure some of the people who are running these prisons or, or within this apparatus know that this is wrong. And, and some of the people who are running it are Uyghurs. The, there's a high-level wow. government official in Xinjiang who is Uyghur who will tell you the Chinese Communist Party line about all of this. <laughs> that I, that is truly a mystery. That I I cannot even attempt to start to answer, but I I'm I will just, I will try to answer some other I'm things. I'm just so puzzled. Yeah. And do people stand outside like waiting for their 
answers for... No, waiting to be able to see people inside. Again, not every facility is the same. In some facilities, people can have people visit. In other ones, it seems like they can't. In some of them, it's much more like a prison. In other places, it's less so. There, it it seems to vary with the little bit of information that we do have. So there were 39 facilities that were examined in detail by Reuters and um, this organization called Earthrise Media. They established that these facilities have, um, that they looked at specifically, have tripled in size over 17 months between April of 2017 and August of 2018 to cover an area equal to 140 soccer fields. Yeah, huge, huge area. Um, Sense estimates that there could be as many as 1,200 camps. Quote, at least one for every county and township in Xinjiang, close quote. So that's sort of the upper limit of what we think. There, there could be one in essentially every single place. There could be one. Um it, that is a possibility. So we have some idea, right, of, of the scale of this. It's large. It's disturbing. It's it's sort of almost unfathomable. But we can get some sense of our head around this, right, of, you know, this mystery of, um, you know, how, how big is this, how many people. But, of course, there's another mystery, a more sort of ethereal mystery of why. Why? Why? Like, yeah. wh- wh- how? Wh- why would you lock up a million people? You know, I mean, how how could a society actually do this? Or why would they do this? Or how in more the sense of, like, morally how? Or, or sort of, like, cognitively how? Are, are they be Okay, so are these people being brought up on on some type of charge and they're being put into play or what's no. the explanation to what Yeah, no, there there is no explanation, there are no charges, there is no judicial proceeding, uh there is no um arrest as such. Um it's it's not that kind of thing. Um they they are disappeared. Um we've used that term before on the pod. They are truly disappeared. And in 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 some instances and this is especially true if you're a family member abroad of one of these people. You you may never know that they got taken in the first place. They may just never be able to be contacted ever again. Or what might be even worse is um, you contact them and you, they tell you that the police are there. And then they tell you never to call them again. And this is your mother. Yeah. And this gives you, again, we don't know exactly what's going on, right? But this gives you some idea. If if someone's mom is willing to tell them to never contact them again, that gives you some idea of the scale of what's going on, right? So, um, yeah, uh, so, sorry, I'm just trying to find my place here. So, the, all of this very much obviously breeds a lot of mysteries, right, With for these people indiv- as individuals. Right. Um, so I think we have to keep that in mind. There, there's sort of this large-scale mystery, right, about the, the prisons and how many and all that stuff. But then there are all of the myriad, innumerable mysteries of, for each of these people. Where is my dad? Where is my daughter? Uh, will I ever see them again? Are they dead? Are they alive? Or are they being mistreated? Uh, are they going to recognize me when, when I see them again? It 
again, it's it's just like it's too much to take in, right? But it's one of these where there's a, a whole world of mysteries that surrounds this central mystery. And um, again, this question of why. Why go, go to all this trouble? So the, the best answer that I can come up with for this uh, question of why is um, sort of twofold. Um, but it, it essentially comes down to the fact that Xinjiang is critical. Even a sort of existential crisis, um, in a sense, um, or opportunity for modern China. Um so this manifests mainly in two sort of sets of issues, security issues and economic issues. Um, we've sort of touched on this, right? The Chinese authorities um, feel that Xinjiang is an inherent security threat. Um, it's separatist minorities, it's, you know, Muslim population, it's uh, proximity to these breakaway former Soviet republics. All of these factors combine to create a hugely unstable situation in the eyes of Beijing. Um, so it's it's something that has to be contained. There's a sort of containment philosophy to Xinjiang that I think um, is a useful prism through, through which to answer this question of why are they doing this, right? Why lock up a million people if you feel that it's an existential threat to the existence of your country? That starts to answer, I think, the question of why. Um, so, and like I said before, there have been incidents of of terrorism, um, including mass knife attacks, that have provided some impetus and cover for much of the increase in security infrastructure in Xinjiang, not least of which, of course, the internment camps. So the securing of Xinjiang is also especially critical to Beijing because of its e increasing importance to Chinese economic growth. So these are interrelated factors, obviously. So while the overall Chinese economy has slowed down in recent years, um, the economy of Xinjiang has maintained double-digit growth because the Chinese government has so heavily invested into it. Why have they done that? Because Xinjiang, because of the energy resources, but also because of its um, um, you know, strategic position, is essentially like the economic future of, of China um, because of the energy, but also because of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is this sort of huge, large-scale, worldwide initiative to revitalize the land route to the West from China and also create the next generation of infrastructure with Chinese money and labor. So um, th this is sort of Xi's big idea of modern China, of the next step for China, is Belt and Road. The separatists and insecure situation in Xinjiang is getting in the way of that in his eyes, I believe, and therefore a crackdown must occur um, in order to secure the future of of China. And th th again, that's how Xi Jinping and the, the, the Chinese authorities would phrase it, I believe, not obviously what I myself believe. <laughs> um, so this is essentially coming down to prioritizing money and power before people. That's that's how I can simply put it. Um, it That's the simplest way I can boil it down, right? That's the answer. Why? Because money and power are more important than people, um, obviously, to, to these uh, – to the authorities in China. So we, again, I'll just kind of underline it. All In all likelihood, there are 
maybe more than a million people being held in modern-day gulags, being re-educated, stripped of their culture and rights, beaten, uh, humiliated, just any, any terrible thing you can imagine. But we don't really know. Also, we don't really know. The, both of those things are true at the same time um, because China is keeping that knowledge from us and from their citizens, obviously, more importantly, right? Um, but but also from all of us. Um, and, you know, thankfully we have brave people, like I mentioned before, getting that knowledge for us, investigating these things, actually going there yeah. and facing down the authorities that are doing these horrible atrocities, which, again... I would never do in a million years, so, like, thank you so much. Um, but we will probably never have a full answer of really what's going on here because conceivably the Chinese government would, would never be willing to tell us. And um, even if they some future Chinese government were, the current one's probably going to have gotten rid of the records. So really we'll probably never have a full picture of just what is going on in, in Xinjiang at this time. So anyway, my sources um, are Damodar Panda at the Indian Journal of Asian Affairs, uh, Remy Kastitz at The Nation, uh, Wikipedia, primarily the Uyghurs and Xinjiang conflict pages, John Sudworth at BBC, Philip Wynn and Oljas Ayuzov, and Ben Blanchard at Reuters, Anna Lipscomb from U.S. China Today, and uh, Lindsay Maisland at the Council on Foreign Relations. Wow. So yeah, that was a big one. I considered doing it in two episodes. I think it was it was not quite enough for two, but it was a little bit more than one. So thanks for listening to all of that. <laughs> if you did make your way through it, uh, gold star for you because that that was kind of a tough episode, and I understand. That was wild. So th- th- and with that, thank you so much for listening. Obviously. Um, so, you ready to do some weird shit in the news? Weird shit in the news. Weird. That was... Was that weird? a bad, like, radio sketch show. Right. That's all, that's, that's all that I'm looking to do with all of this. Right. And the douche. Um, okay, so mine is about these weird deaths that are happening in Germany right now with crossbows. So here's an article from... (laughs) Sorry. Okay, okay. So here's an article from (laughs) CNN. This is not funny, okay. I was going to say, like, super funny crossbow death. Uh, Death count in crossbow case rises as two more bodies found in Germany. So uh, originally they found... Three and three of them were killed um, by crossbow, and then about uh, four hundred miles away, they find two more. Um, and I think it's uh, uh, okay. Okay, so the th- there were there were three victims. The first three victims in um, Passau, Bavaria. Bavaria, Bavaria, Bavaria. 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 Um, so a 53-year-old f- a man and a 33-year-old woman, old woman were found lying on a bed holding hands and then a 30-year-old woman lying on 
the floor. And then two more bodies were found at a flat in Whittingen, Lower Saxony. So it's pretty brutal. They don't really know what's going on. Um, the the other two, um, they said they they um. It was connected it, to the apartment of one of the. It was like it was the like the. They found, right? Yeah, it was like um. Because I read I read this article. Earlier. Yeah, I don't I don't remember the exact connection. It was but like there was some connection. They they like called the next of kin or like they called this guy's someone who they had a relationship with to like tell them oh like this person's dead, and then they found them. Um, but those are also those are not crossbows death deaths um the bodies showed no sign of external violence um but they identified um them as two women 135 um and 119 so it's weird developing story yeah they think it might be a suicide pact because um there were formal wills found in the in the room Mm. of the three Mm. um but yeah makes sense okay so uh mine is uh by morgan windsor uh abc news and uh headline is woman broke into stranger's home petted dog washed dishes and left authorities say so (laughs) so it's a weird story so it's in in ohio and uh yeah this woman was um just there in uh in their home um she looked kind of strange she was acting kind of strangely and uh she was just sitting there on their couch pet petting their dog what? apparently the dog didn't give a shit uh it's like wow well, i'll be petted by anybody i don't give a shit yeah. and is what the dog was thinking i'm assuming and then she uh washed some dishes and then she left um she apparently didn't steal anything she didn't try to hurt anybody it's not totally clear what she was thinking or why she did this. Um, but no, she, she, um, she was arrested and uh, taken to jail. So uh, presumably we'll maybe find out. I'm not sure. And oh, apparently she had been also knocking on the doors of other people in the area. So, yeah, I, perhaps some substance involved, perhaps. Maybe. I feel like that's some meth head shit right there. Could be. I don't know. Could be. Um, once again, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, my Twitter is, uh, MarioTex30. Um, I believe we're at, mis- we always forget, fuck. Add Mystery Thingy, I think. I think it's Murdery Thingy. Add Murdery Thingy. Aww. I think it's Murdery Thingy. Yeah, I think you you're right. fucked up the first time. <laughs> you fucked it up! Um, nothing <laughs> is fucked, dude. Nothing. Uh, so anyway, um... Yeah, all that stuff. All that good stuff. Good, 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 good. Um, Are we done? Yeah, we're done, dude. Okay, good. <laughs> Bye. We're done, yeah. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.